Thank you, John. Uh, yes, I was asked to spend the first half talking about science and faith, which I'm very pleased to do. Um, I actually think that science is a huge gift from God. The fact we live in a, a universe that's understandable by humans and a universe where we can use that understanding for the good of humankind. I mean, I think that's not a given, um, and I think that's one of God's gracious graces to us, one of his goodness to us. But I've been asked to talk about the flood today. Um, I love this picture. If you look hard, you'll see the, the lion. Can you see him looking around, looking quizzically at the lamb? Um, <laughs> this was after the fall, remember? But I'm going to spend the first half talking about faith and science uh, and perhaps some of my own personal story, and then we'll get on to Noah in the second half. So I want to start off by just saying something about what science is, because uh, I think what they tell us in school... Uh, you know, you, you do an experiment, you get results, and then you get a theory from it. It's, it's not at all the way it is. It's, it's an incredibly creative business. Um, Mark Twain's always good for quotes. This is what he said. He said, there's something fascinating about science. One gets such a wholesale return of conjecture out of such a trifling investment of fact. Now, what he was getting at was that all the, all the best theories, they just have some flash of insight which sort of explains loads of things. It never explains any, everything, um, which is a really good job, because otherwise scientists would be out of a job. Uh, but simple ideas can explain all sorts of things, uh, and that's what he was getting at. And it is an incredibly creative activity, as I said, and I think people forget that, actually. Um, the other thing I want to say about science is that it's always provisional. So we're trying to describe the world around us, and we do it to a better or a poorer extent. Um, but you can almost guarantee that in a few years' time or a few decades' time, better understanding will emerge. And today's wonderful theories uh, will be discarded, really, because we move on and new theories explain things better. So I, I've put up um, Einstein's theory equals mc squared. This was published in a, a three-page paper. That's all it is. Um, and, you know, it revolutionized things. But actually, before Einstein, we had Newton's laws of motion, which we all had to suffer learning at school, I'm sure. Um, and they explain things really pretty well. You know, you can explain the orbits of the Earth around the sun. Uh, you can explain how billiard balls move on the table. You, you can get somebody to the moon with Newton's laws of motion. It's just if you're going near the speed of light, they don't quite work. Um, and that's... Einstein's brilliance, but clearly Einstein's theory is not the last word. So science is provisional, so when somebody tells you science says this must be the case, just be a little bit sceptical, because uh, it might be the case today, but you know, who knows what it will be in the future. Now, one, one thing I noticed about Einstein, I was looking at some old pictures um, the other day of myself, and um, I thought, well, there's, <laughs> there's hope for me yet, I thought. That was a little while ago. Um, the other thing I want to say is that Einstein's wife was asked uh, if she understood the theory of relativity. Now, she was a physicist as well. And this is what Einstein's wife said. She said, oh, no, although he has explained it to me many times, but it's not necessary to my happiness, she said. And I think that's an important thing to remember. There are some people that think the only important thing in the world is science. Science can explain that. I won't name any names, but you, know, you don't need anything else. And clearly that's not true, and she said that's not true. Um, 
science can't explain everything. There's an awful lot of really important things it can't explain, which matter to us as, as people. Um, let me just give a sort of trivial example, actually. If, you, if I was at home and the kettle was boiling and my wife, who's sitting here, um, said, why is the kettle boiling? You know, I could be a nerdy scientist. I could say, well, we're putting energy into the element and that's raising the temperature of the water and it reaches a transition and it makes vapor phase and then there's the latent heat of... And I could have gone on and on about this and um, I don't think she would have been best pleased. Uh, or I could have said, the kettle's boiling because I was going to make a cup of tea for you. <laughs> um, now, they're both perfectly valid explanations of why the kettle's boiling and they're both correct at the same time. So I think sometimes we think science and faith are opposed or they're different things, but they're both actually seeking to explain the same world in which we live. Perhaps another example might be when you get married, you usually don't uh, have a huge long list of logical reasons why you're getting married. Um, my father-in-law died uh, actually just a few weeks ago. He had been married 67 and a half years. Um, but I've been married 42 years, and I know that I know a lot more about uh, Helen, and she knows a lot more about me than we did 42 years ago. And we're very pleased to be married still, I should say. Actually, one person who did write it all down was Charles Darwin, and we still have his notebooks. Um, and one of the things, and he put all the pros and cons about getting married. I mean, he actually had a very happy marriage, did Charles Darwin. But before he got married, he said, um, this is very non-politically correct, I have to say, um, he said, um, picture yourself a nice soft wife on a sofa with a good fire and books and music, perhaps. What I love about that is books come up really high in that, uh, <laughs> that list. He can sit on the sofa with books. And then elsewhere in this great list, he said, well, it'd be great to have a wife because it would be an object to be beloved. And then afterwards, he'd added a little note above it saying, well, better than a dog anyway. <laughs> That's <laughs> certainly not politically correct. But lots of things, lots of decisions we make that really matter in life are not scientific ones, are they? Um, now, John told me I had to do everything in 36 point or you wouldn't be able to read it. Um, now, this is purposefully in 10 point. I'll tell you what it says. It says, uh, well, actually, I can't read it either. It says, <laughs> we can only see or measure 4% of the stuff in the universe. Right? You'll be able to read this. 96% of the universe is dark energy or dark matter about which we literally know nothing. So even the bit we know about the universe is only a tiny fraction of it, and we don't know that very well, and it changes year by year. So whenever some scientist says science tells you everything there is to know, just be a little bit skeptical about that. Well, as I said at the beginning, um, one of the great things about science is that it can be used for the common good and for the glory of God. Now, one of the interesting things about the Royal Society, which was arguably when science got going as a professional um, body, a professional way of working in Britain, uh, but first in the world, um, the charter, which was from Charles II in 1663, uh, which you won't be able to read either, and you couldn't anyway if you could read it because it's in Latin, but this is, well, some of you could, but I couldn't. Uh, this is what he said. He said, the society's studies, this is the Royal Society which he was setting up, are to be applied to further promoting by the authority of experiments, the science of natural things, that's what we call science today, and of useful arts, to the glory of God the Creator 
and the advantage of the human race. So the founders of the Royal Society were very consciously setting it up so that they could use understanding of the world around them for the good of humankind. Um, and there's all sorts of great things have come out of science, aren't there? You know, we've eradicated smallpox, we live longer, uh, we can repair a lot of things that go wrong, and all kinds of stuff. You might think mobile phones possibly are a good thing or possibly not, but um, we've got all those things. And the founders of the Royal Society were consciously doing this for the glory of God and for the advantage of the human race, for, to improve the lot of humankind. And actually many of them were Christians, were believing Christians. And one of the interesting things is that there's, there's been about 8,000 members, fellows of the Royal Society, since um, it was first set up 350 years ago. And on the 350th anniversary, the Royal Society um, persuaded the, the government to issue 10 stamps with scientists on them. Um, you'll notice they're first-class stamps, of course, being the Royal Society. And they chose one scientist who had had a profound impact on the world for every 35 years. So they chose one from each period. And I got one of these through the, through the door, and I looked at it, and I thought, you know, I know that person. Well, I didn't know that person. I know about that person and that person and that person. They were all real believing scientists. Now, of that list, six of those were really believing Christians. Uh, Boyle, Newton, Babbage, Franklin, and Lister. And it was an important part of their life. And I'm quite sure the Royal Society did not choose these people for that reason. Um, but it, that's what they were. Um, so anybody who says now that science and faith are opposed just doesn't know their history, to be honest. And actually, another of those five there... Um, I did actually know two of them. Um, one of them was in our department, the one on the bottom right, Nick Shackton. And um, another of them, I, my first uh, PhD student was a great-granddaughter of Rutherford, so I sort of, sort of knew about him. Um, but of those other five, two of them were believed in a deity uh, or of some kind, even though it wasn't a Christian deity necessarily. So... To say these things are opposed is people just don't know their history. So let me just tell you some of the things that some of those people said. So Robert Boyle was the person that changed alchemy into a pro proper professional uh, discipline of chemistry. Um, and he wrote a big textbook on it, which was incredibly influential for a long time. But he also wrote, uh, he was a great Christian philanthropist. He was actually one of the richest people in Britain, had holdings in Ireland, and he set up all sorts of Christian charities and translated the Bible into local language for North American Indians, uh, for Indians in India, uh, and all sorts of other things. And he wrote this book called The Christian Virtuoso. And the subtitle, they always had long subtitles in their books in those days. Uh, the subtitle was this, that by being, in old-fashioned words, of course, because it was 1660s, that by being addicted to experimental philosophy, that is science, a man is rather assisted than indisposed to be a good Christian. That's the subtitle of that book. Uh, another one was Newton, and you might not know this, but his uh, incredibly important book, uh, The Principia, which first put mathematics on a, on a good basis, had this preface. The preface was written by a don in Cambridge called uh, Roger Coates, who wrote this, The order of nature was established by the will of God, and he must be blind who from the most wise and excellent contrivances of things cannot see the infinite wisdom and goodness of their almighty creator. 
and he must be mad and senseless who refuses to acknowledge them. That's on the flyleaf of Principia. Uh, actually, poor old Roger Coates um, died a premature death at age 33 because he got a chill in Cambridge uh, in the nasty fen weather and died of it. So that's Principia. Um, Charles Babbage, of course, was the, the, the forerunner of modern computing, um, and he also was, was a very um, active Christian. He wrote this, The study of the works of nature with scientific precision is a necessary and indispensable preparation to the understanding and interpreting their testimony of the wisdom and goodness of their divine creator, their divine author. Um, so again, he, he saw how important it was. Um, the next thing I want to say, really, um, in the light of that, you know, that link between science and faith that those Royal Society people clearly had, um, is that Christianity is deeply rooted in the material world. And I think of all religions, Christianity, uh, if you'll forgive me this, is the most materialistic of religions. Right? I don't mind saying this in a church. I think it's a very materialistic religion in the sense that matter matters to God. And you're doing Genesis, and you must have got past chapter 1 already, I guess. Um, and when you read chapter 1, if nothing else strikes you, it's that time after time, God's made something, and he says, that was good, 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 that was good. He says it six times. Then he looks at everything he's made, including humans, and he says, that was very good. God made matter for us to live here, and we're not people unless we're embodied people. Well, other people have said the same sort of thing about this. Um, there was, a, an, as I said, I study earthquakes and volcanoes, and, and there was a, a disaster, really, which really struck at the heart of the new Enlightenment Europe, um, which happened on All Saints' Day in 1755, when Lisbon, which was the most prosperous capital in Europe, um, was devastated by an earthquake. The houses were wooden houses built close together. There were lots of church services going on with candles and their cooking meals. And almost straight away, there was a firestorm, uh, which actually engulfed the city. I'm afraid to say that the planners of the, um, the bombings of Dresden and Hamburg and so on in the Second World War looked at what happened here to create a firestorm in the same way. And then people ran down to the waterfront of the River Tagus and... Half an hour or so later, a big tsunami came in. So these poor people had earthquake, fire, and flood, one after the other. And many people died. And this was a real shock. It came from left field. People wondered what on earth was going on, uh, as disasters do today. And so in, in Britain, John Wesley was writing in 1755. He wrote pamphlets. People wrote pamphlets in those days. He wrote a pamphlet called Serious Thoughts, occasioned by the late earthquake in uh, Lisbon. But this is what he wrote, which I think is quite profound. He said, what is nature itself but the art of God or God's method of working, of acting, in the material world? In other words, you can't say that earthquake or whatever was just nature, that's nothing to do with God, because if you have a, a strong view of the sovereignty of God, God is imminent in this world, although he also exists if the world didn't exist because he created it. And if that's the case, then... Of course, he's involved in it as well. You can't say that's just nature and not God. That's a miscategory mistake. And actually, what Wesley was saying had been said centuries early, millennia earlier, by Augustine, as he often did. He said, nature is what God does, much more pithily, or nature is what God is doing, 
the translation from the Latin. So nature is God's action in the world. It's deeply embedded. And again, if we, uh, just to, to stay in Cambridge just for a little while, um, Francis Bacon, and there's a statue of him in Trinity College, he, he wrote a very influential book, and this is what he said. He said, God must first be known from nature and afterwards recognized from doctrine, from nature by his works and from doctrine by his revealed words. What he meant by that was, you can tell something about God by looking at the world around you because he created it, but if you want to know his purposes, then you can only know if he tells you. Otherwise, you're just projecting onto God your own ideas. And of course, God has told us supremely uh, in Scripture and through the life of Jesus. Uh, somebody asked Jesus what God was like and effectively said, if you want to know what God's like, look at me. So science and scripture. And this view of two books has been very influential for, for a long time. Now, another famous person is uh, Charles Darwin. This is his Origin of Species. And if you look at the flyleaf of that, of his first edition, um, people might be surprised to know this, but he actually quoted Francis Bacon in that book on his flyleaf. He said, Let no man think or maintain that a man can search too far or be too well studied in the book of God's word, that's the Bible, or in the book of God's works, that's nature. But rather let men, of course, if he'd written it today, he would have said men and women or people, rather let men endeavor an endless progress or proficiency in both. Actually, what he didn't uh, quote was the next bit that comes from that, which I think is very enlightening. Only let men beware that they apply both to charity and not to swelling, to use and not to ostentation, um, which I think would be a good thing to tell some quite arrogant scientists today, because they can be very arrogant, can't they? Well, there's just a, a few pointers to science and faith um, and how they might work together. And as I say, one of, the, one of the joys of my life of being a professional scientist all my life is that I'm actually studying God's creation. I think that's an enormous privilege. Um, and actually, the more you see it, the more you see God's handiwork in it, I think, if you have, if you have eyes to see. So let me pause there. Thank you. Right, Noah and the flood. Um, it's not really Noah's flood. I don't think it was his fault. It's the no. Noah, which is why I've called it the Noatian flood. Um, let me just say something about floods. Floods are actually the thing that kills most people in the world in the way of disaster. It's not volcanoes or earthquakes um, or fires. It's floods. And actually, I mean, sadly, even this last week, a man died in England, didn't he? in the Midlands, in a flood, and that happens every year. I've shown this slide before, so some of you may have seen this before, but it always strikes me, that's why I use it. On the 12th of November, 1970, when some at least of us were alive, that one night in what is now Bangladesh, it was East Pakistan now, more than half a million people died in a flood. Floods are really dangerous things and really common things. Um, so it's not surprising that they pop up quite often in the Bible, including Noah's flood. Now let me just say a, a few things about what it might have been, what it might not have been. Um, I'm a geologist, as I said, and actually there is, I should say this up front, there is no evidence for a global flood 
that happen simultaneously all around the world, although lots of floods happen in lots of places um, all the time. Um, now, that's important to say, because well, when the Bible says there was a flood over all the world, what is it talking about? Does this mean I shouldn't believe the Bible? Well, I don't think it does, um, and I'll explain why. But let me just show you uh, some massive floods. River floods I've talked about, um, and floods from typhoons and tsunamis are another thing. But there's an unusual type of flood, which actually happens quite often um, because of plate tectonics, plates moving around. And it happened um, in the Western Mediterranean uh, some time ago. This isn't the Noah flood, because it was before humans were around. But the Straits of Gibraltar actually opened and closed. And at one point, they were closed, and the, the Western Mediterranean dried up completely. All the water in it evaporated. Well, you know that seawater is salty, so it's left a layer of salt on the bottom. And it, it's done that several times. And in fact, that's quite common. The bottom of the North Sea, underneath the seabed, there's layers of salt um, off most of the margins of South, uh, southern, southern Africa and South America. There's, there's big salt layers where basins, little areas, have got isolated from the sea, and then the sea has flooded back, it's evaporated, and they've got isolated again. So there were massive floods um, when the Straits of Gibraltar were breached, um, and it's eroded great big gullies down. Um, that's something we know has happened. Um, what about the Noatian flood? What can we say about that? Well, in the 19th century, people got really excited when they were doing excavations in what they called the Fertile Crescent up through Iraq there, um, what is now Iraq, in this sort of area. Um, and they found lots of evidence of floods that had destroyed cities there. Some of the oldest cities in the world are found in that region. Um, and this became a very popular explanation for the Noah's flood. They said there was a massive flood. It wiped out all these, these places where people were living. Now, subsequent work has shown that, yes, there were lots of floods and towns were washed away every now and then. But actually, it wasn't simultaneous through all of those um, places where people lived at the same time. They were at different times. And, of course, a river flood isn't really going to destroy all of humanity, is it? Because you just go up the hill and then you rebuild afterwards. So that's sort of fallen out of favor now, but that was certainly something you might read in older books, um, that there were floods there. Um, I think a more interesting one is the Black Sea, because it turns out if we just blow up that uh, part of the Black Sea there, there's an isthmus between the Black Sea and the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, goes through uh, Constantinople, um, the capital of Turkey, what used to be Constantinople. And that water passageway is only 35 meters deep. It's not very deep. Now, in ice ages, what happens is the water gets locked up on land and sea level drops a lot, about 120 meters, so 300 and, uh, nearly 400 foot, which is, in East Anglia, that's a lot. Um, and sea level certainly did that in the last ice age, which ended about 10,000 years ago, about uh, the time probably um, humans were first inhabiting this area. Um, but then, of course, when the ice melted, the sea level rise, rises again, and it melted quite quickly. There's a lot of feedback. And eventually, it breached this 35-meter channel and flooded into the Black Sea. Now, if there were humans around 10,000 years ago, which I'm sure there were, a good place to live in an ice age would be below sea level, wouldn't it? Because it would be warmer. And living around the shores of a much diminished Black Sea, which would only have been fed by freshwater rivers like the Volga and so on coming from Russia, would have been quite a good place to live. There was freshwater lake at the bottom, um, 
and it was a bit warmer because you're below sea level. Um, so it is a possible candidate for a massive flood um, which affected a lot of people when this water broke through. Um, this is a graph of um, glacial of sea level over the past uh, quite a long period. Glaciations come in cycles, they come and they go. Um, but the most recent one on the left-hand side, um, the water rose really, really quickly, and it rose 120 meters uh, in the space of probably um, a few a thousand years or so. Uh, and it would have flooded through that point very quickly. Um, and once it had flooded through and broken through the sediments, um, and it probably happened about 5,600 BC, about seven or 8,000 years ago, um, the flow rate is a million cubic meters a second, which doesn't really mean much to me. It sounds like a big number. Uh, it's 200 times the flow of Niagara. That's quite a lot. Um, the water on the bottom of the Red Sea, it's been calculated as the Black Sea, would have advanced at about two kilometers a day uh, because it's fairly flat. Now, if you lived on the shore, you know, you can walk two kilometers if you're healthy and young. Uh, if you're old and infirm or very young, maybe you couldn't. Um, if you got stuck on a slight high point and the water came around you, you might get trapped and drowned eventually. Um, so, although it doesn't sound that fast, it was, could have been very nasty. And the Black Sea was filled in one or two years, probably, with water. Um, so this is a possible candidate for a catastrophic event which was remembered in folk memory. Now, this was before the Bible was written. Um, but actually, people have shown that oral memories can be incredibly well-preserved and passed on through generations. So it's possible. Um, and you can see this is Echo Sounder records from the Black Sea. There's great gullies where the water gushed through and eroded valleys. So maybe there was a massive flood, and maybe this was in folk memory when it was written about. Um, and maybe it was a flood which affected all of the known world where people lived. But actually, I think the Noah story is more than that, um, even though this is a possible basis for, for some folk memory because there are quite a lot of other myths around. Now, um, myths are things which are based on reality. They're, they're based on things that have happened, but they're making points. Um, and one of the most famous ones is a Gilgamesh epic uh, from about 2300 BC, um, from Mesopotamia. It's been preserved on um, cuneiform, and people have found this tablet from the 7th century BC. And this records a very similar thing, a great flood, uh, which killed off all the people. But with one big difference, um, what the Bible does, it picks up maybe this story and it gives it a real theological message, a, um, a Christian theological message, because all these other myths tend to revolve around the idea that there were many gods and the gods were angry with people because they were very noisy and keeping them awake at night. Um, some of us might have some sympathy with that on these summer nights when somebody's got a party going on till 3 a.m. next door. And so the gods punished the people. That's one of the things, other sort of stories that these gods wanted people to serve them and bring them their food and so on, and they were a bit angry with them because they weren't doing it very well. Now, what the Bible does, it takes uh, what might be based on a real story and makes a much stronger statement, a much stronger theological statement. And I think actually it's a theological statement which is the important thing that we should take from it. Um, even if it is based on some catastrophic happening some years, many years earlier. Uh, what we know about Noah is that he was a righteous man. Uh, the Bible says that. Blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. It's pretty straightforward. Why did God send a flood then, you might ask? 
Well, what the Bible says is that the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. Something we might well empathize today, just listening to the prayers about Syria today. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And you remember the story that Noah and and animals were saved, just this righteous man and his immediate family, and God started afresh from that. But the whole reason it happened was because of sin, because of wrongdoing violence in the earth, not the way God had meant it to be. And there's an interesting parallel, you've already done creation, that the flood is like, you might say it's like decreation because you go back to a watery void and then like a recreation because the order is re-established under the righteous Noah and his family. Of course, things actually didn't go entirely right after that, did they? Because pretty soon people are behaving the same way again. But the theological message seems to be that God really cares and is deeply troubled by sin by rebellion against him which is what sin is Um, and so he stripped the earth clean of it and started afresh whoops I pressed the wrong button to go backwards well there's some interesting things was the flood truly global well as I say there's no record of it some people say well it was the whole of the known universe uh, to the people that were writing you know the area they lived and there may well have been a flood over that whole area But actually, I think the writers of that story were actually saying, yes, this is something that matters globally. This matters worldwide. Sin is not just restricted to Cambridge or this bit of Mesopotamia. It's an issue that faces the whole of humankind. And I think the writer was making a point there that actually this is something that affects the whole globe. And then there's something about the language, isn't there? Um, uh, Just to pick one passage from the Bible... um, from Joshua, um, the Israelites had, had gone out to try and defeat some enemies, and they hadn't actually, they were a bit arrogant, they didn't send enough people in the army, and, and the enemy had killed 36 of them, and the Israelites had retreated in, in disarray. Um, and what it says is, the, this enemy chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries, and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear, and became like water. Well, we know exactly what they mean, don't we? We talk about our knees quaking. Their hearts melted with fear. But it doesn't mean physically they melted, but it's a, a way of explaining how terrible they felt. Or actually, to take an example from Genesis, which you'll no doubt come to later on, um, from the story of Joseph. You remember the famines when Joseph was in charge of um, all the grain in Egypt? that he'd stored up grain and people from round about came to get grain from him because there was a a regional famine over that whole region, that whole area. Uh, So people came to get grain, in fact, including his own family, and that's the story of when the Israelite nation first got going um, in in Egypt because they were brought into Egypt. Uh, But this is what the Bible says about that occasion. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. Now, I don't think we're meant to take that to say that all the world included the Aborigines in Tasmania, um, for example, or the Native Americans in North America came to Egypt to get... I mean, it just wouldn't work, would it? There wouldn't be enough grain for them all, for one thing, and it would be an awful long walk for another thing. 
Um, but we know exactly what we mean, what he meant, what the writer meant. You know, there, there was a terrible famine and everybody was coming to get food. So there's something about language. We have to read language of the Bible in the way it's intended. There's obviously bits of the Bible which are history, bits which are poetry, bits which are pretty complicated theology, and some which are history. Um, so I think an interesting thing to do, uh, just to finish off with, I want to look at three authors of other books in the Bible and how they use this story about Noah's flood, about the flood that happened at the time of Noah. And I want to start with an Old Testament one um, from Isaiah. Um, it's a bit of a long one, so I'll read it out. Um, and this is the words of God speaking. To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now, says God, I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. And that's actually an incredibly comforting thing, isn't it? Whatever disaster has happened, and Noah was, was one of the worst disasters you could imagine, whatever happens to us in our lives, the Lord has compassion on us and has unfailing love for us if we're followers of him. So that's an Old Testament one. What about Jesus? Jesus actually used this story of Noah. Um, and this is what he said. Um, he said... As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. What he's talking about is the time when Jesus will return to earth again, having um, risen after the cross. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. This is how it will be at the end of all time, when I return to earth, says Jesus. People just taking no notice of him just getting on with things and ignoring him, he said. Uh, and he goes on to say, does Jesus, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come, so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Um, so this is acknowledging what a mess the world, the brokenness of the world, and yet that it will be redeemed, that Christ will return to put things right. And then the last one I want to um, pick up on is, is uh, Peter in the New Testament, one of his letters talking uh, to other Christians. Um, again, picking up this theological message of the flood and what it means in the light of the new creation. Uh, this is what Peter said. He said, above all, you must understand that in the last days, those are the time we're living in now, really, before Jesus returns, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they will say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on just as it has since the beginning of creation. I mean, that might be a familiar thing, mightn't it, to people we talk to today? But they deliberately forget, says Peter, that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. That's that Genesis 1 story you've looked at already, some of you. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. But, says Peter, he goes on to say, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's the same as Jesus said, wasn't it? We don't know when it will be. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So I think what he's picking up is that that first flood, Noah's flood, wiped sin off the earth because it was such a terrible thing. And this is what Peter is saying will happen 
at the end of all time, when Jesus returns, sin will be white, the earth will be white, bare, and sin will be removed. And in the new creation that will follow, when Christ and God himself will come down to live on earth with his people, there'll be no more sin, no more mourning or crying or death, all the, the terrible things which are so awful for us. Because everything's um, been renewed and that sinfulness has been wiped clear. And I think that's a, a real encouragement for us. And that's the way that the theological message of that flood has been picked up. So I want to finish, uh, famously, the end of Noah's story. God says, never again uh, will he do this uh, until the end of all time. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, he says, I will see it and remember the everlasting promise, the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. Never again will I do this, says God. And um, I guess you've had holidays like this. This is one of our holidays in the Lake District. Um, and we sometimes groan when it rains on holiday, don't we? Because um, we're all working this week instead of being out in the sun. Some of us are doing exams. Some of us are having to mark exams. It's even worse, I think. <laughs> uh, but this rainbow, just remember, next time you see a rainbow, just remember this promise. Just say, oh, that's God's promise to us. That everlasting faithful covenant to us. So let me stop there. And I'm happy to take questions. I'm going to suggest, why don't you um, just grab a seat for a minute. And yeah. Why don't we um, take one minute? Sometimes it helps to formulate your question if you, you've had a chance to chat through. So um, someone nearby, what question is sort of brewing in response to what Bob's just been sharing with us? Take a minute and then we'll get some questions to the front. Yes, you'd look, uh, and we, we can see evidence from floods. When they happen, you get layers of silt deposited. You just look at pictures of floods in, in Britain, you know, and the people just have a layer of mud in their house, which is disgusting usually because it's all mixed with sewage. I mean, you, you would see layers of sediment all over the world of exactly the same age. Now, you do see layers of sediment from floods, and that sort of deceived people for a while in, if you go back 150 years, but it pretty soon became obvious they were from different times. They weren't simultaneous. They'd have to be simultaneous across the whole world. So, um, That's probably the main evidence. There's lots of other things, but that's one of the main things. Great. Helpful. Next up. Good. Make sure it's as far away as possible. Well done, John. <laughs> Needs his exercise. Um, concerning the these different sediment layers you say occurring at different times could you perhaps talk more about how we date those layers in order to get an accurate um, representation of when they occurred well I could give another lecture on geology but I, I just can't <laughs> <laughs> you can come to my lectures in the department <laughs> um, there's all sorts of ways I mean the, the most simple way is just counting layers if it's, if it's a lake you can just count annual layers down um, but if there's a bit of wood preserved in it, you can often date... Tree. Have you ever seen tree rings in the London Museum? You know, you can go back to the Great Flower of London and even further back, you can count tree rings. And the reason you can do this is because good, good growing years, you get wider rings. Poor years, you get thinner rings. So actually, you can overlap trees of older and older ages and, and make a time scale which goes back a long way. Um, you can measure layers in glaciers back. And then if you want to go further back, you can do various radiometric dating and things like that. So there's a myriad of ways of doing it. Um, Interestingly, yeah. all of which presuppose an order to creation. 
They all do, all do presuppose that, yeah. yeah. Which is, as I said at the beginning, that's why we can do science, because it is orderly, it doesn't change. Yeah. Um, so we presume that back in the past it's the same as it is now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that does pretty well. It can get you back to one... 10 to the minus 43, if you know what that means. It's about a million, 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 millionths of a second of the star of the universe. It, it sort of breaks down in the first fraction of a second, but it's pretty good. I'll take your word for it. Uh, question at the back? Well, I can't, but other people can do that. Well, an eminent physicist. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. So just coming back to your uh, rainbow, yeah. um, and particularly the promise that God made that he'd never do that again. So how do we make sense of that if this was a, a sort of local flood uh, that uh, wasn't a global flood, but we know that in, since then there has been lots of local floods that have killed millions and millions of people. So how do we then make sense of that seeming possible contradiction? Yes, of course it's, it's not. And of course there were rainbows before the flood, I'm sure there were, um, because it's light refracted through water drops. Um, but God u- just uses that that. Uh, that is a visual aid, really, to remind us of, of his character and of his faithfulness. So that's the first thing I'd say, which wasn't the question you asked. Um, yes, many people have died. I showed you one where half a million people died in Bangladesh, yeah. Um, I, don't think the, I think the Bible is quite clear. It's saying this, is, um, this affects the whole of humanity. Um, and it's picking up some terrible thing which happened, which is in the folk memory, um, and saying, you know reframing that story in a theological message, I think. I don't think it's meant to be a scientific textbook. Science only got going in 1633, and I think we make a mistake if we try and put modern scientific thinking into ancient writings, be they the Bible or anything else, actually. Um, And anyway, even if we do, our ideas will change in 50 years' time for sure. So uh, I don't think it's meant to be a a scientific explanation. It's meant to be a powerful, um, using a powerful story of something which people have some memory of um, some oral memory of it and make a theological message with it. Yeah. So the promise in Genesis 9 is a promise about the theology of what's just happened yes. rather than the, the science, the, the physics of what's physics just happened. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, oh, now hands are really going up. <laughs> uh, Josh. Hi there, thank you for your talk. Um, I'm somewhat concerned about the, the division between strictly theological texts and historical texts. It, it seems to be um, a ploy of modern theology to do that uh, and extend it to things like the, the resurrection, for example, um, if you get into Barton. I, I know there hasn't been time to talk in detail about the Genesis text, but when I read it, um, I think I could be forgiven for thinking that the author had some serious historical intent through the detail that is brought out in terms of the duration of the flood, in terms of measurements and uh, water surpassing the level of mountains. I just want to ask you how you, how you negotiate those um, in terms of the text? Yes, well, as I said, I don't think it is meant to be a scientific textbook. And I think we need wisdom in discerning what is history, because there's lots of straight history in the Bible, and what is uh, theology. And uh, one way of doing it is making sure that it's consistent with the rest of Scripture, because it's a whole piece. And if you think one piece says one thing and one piece another, probably there's something wrong with your interpretation. Mm -hmm. And that's really why I put up those quotes about Noah's flood and the way that people have used or other writers used them uh, to make points. Um, and there's, there's many others as well. I'm sure you'll hear more about them in future sermons. Uh, there's other places where it's talked about. So obviously it's a powerful theological message it's trying to do. Um, do we... Um, 
How do we decide what, what's history and what's theology? Well, uh, you know, as I say, you have to make sure it's consistent with the rest of what we know about God's character and the rest of what Scripture says about him, and specifically when Jesus says things about it. Um, the details, I don't know. G- Jesus put lots of details in his stories. Um, were they stories or were they actual details about specific people? I, I don't know, actually. Um, no, I get into trouble for saying that. I? But I think he, he told parables, which were very powerful stories, and he remembered them. Um, and, and sometimes there's, there's important things in the, the numbers, you know, the 40 days of this, and then we see the 40 days in the wilderness, and 40 days is an important number, for instance. So I think often the Bible is using um, numbers which are sort of significant just as numbers rather than as scientific explanations of particular things. That, I mean, I'm sure you'll hear more about this in the sermons to come. Will you? Yeah, you will. <laughs> I'm going to take one more, one more question. One more question. Now you're all feeling the pressure to make sure it's a good one. <laughs> Go on, Jude. Thanks. Um, you've spoken a lot about the flood. Would you have a similar argument if we were talking about Noah and his ark? About what, sir? Noah and his ark specifically, as opposed to the flood geological, geophysical... Oh, his ark, yeah. I mean, it would be pretty tricky to get the 100 million species into an ark. Um, yeah. But when the Bible talks, it does give specific dimensions, but they're just huge. They're enormous. And sometimes they're symbolic numbers again, actually. They're sort of rounded numbers of things, uh, just like other places in the Bible talks about things. Um, but it was just really big. And the point is, look, this is something really big that God made because he's going to save creation, save created things, save people and animals, clean the world of sin and repopulate it um, with cleansed animals and people. So that's, that's the way I take um, the story about the, the boat, <laughs> the ark, um, rather than saying, again, this was a spirit. I mean, because clearly it couldn't be a, a thing that um, held all the animals in the world, actually, just getting them all together, you know, getting them from South America and Africa and um, wallabies from Australia and whatever else there are. would be pretty tricky, wouldn't it? <laughs> and yet it becomes a brilliant picture for us of a God who brings about a salvation and it ends up pointing us to some other wood later down the road. And, Indeed uh, it does. Yeah. Jesus Christ yes. on the cross. And how he cares about everything actually. Uh, I think one thing we can sometimes get uh, wrong-headed about is saying humans are the greatest thing of all in creation and he just made the rest of creation for himself. Well he didn't. He made the whole of creation and whole of creation glorifies God. Um, what humans have done sort of prevents it giving glory to God in the way it was intended but he often talks about watering a land, for instance, in Psalm 104, where no one lives, right, to make it fertile and rich and productive. No one lives there. He's not doing it for the sake of humans. He's doing it because he's pleased to make things rich and fertile. So I think the fact he saved every ant and every elephant and every bird and so on actually just shows his care for the whole creation. And that's, I think, an important message of this story as well, rather than the physical thing, could he fit them all into this space? Bob, thank you. Massive topic. Very uh, thought-provoking. I'm sure you've got loads more questions. Bob's still here. He's at the front, so it's quite hard for him to get to the back without going past you. So grab him on the way out and uh, ask him further questions. And we're going to to sing.